This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. It's the morning after the Oscars. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And Richard Lawson. Hello. Um, I have to say once again that uh, this time last year, we were all together in a hotel room in Los Angeles recording our post-Oscars thing. It was a different world. But we're here in our own comfortable homes to talk about uh, the Oscars, recording on a Monday morning. Uh, we got so many great questions from all of you guys via subtext that we're going to get into. And um, I think predictably, a lot of the questions uh, from last night and this morning uh, skip straight to the ending. So we want to talk about the entire Oscars, but um, we should definitely start with talking about definitely the strangest ending since the whole Moonlight, Moonlight and La La Land mix-up thing. Um, and the one that seemed so unnecessary. Um, so Anthony Hopkins won Best Actor instead of Chadwick Boseman, which is seemingly is what we all thought would happen, seemingly what the Oscar producers thought would happen by putting Best Actor last. Although before we get into the awkwardness of that, I, a couple of people on subtest asked, and I want to know too, Richard, are you, are you retiring now that you have uh, correctly <laughs> predicted the Best Actor winner um, 14 months in advance? Is it all over? <laughs> Well, I, I feel like I should amend the uh, the congratulations I received uh, last night for that prediction by saying I completely went reversed that prediction <laughs> and totally thought that Chad Bozeman. So I don't think it counts as like I didn't stick to my guns, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, but I would love to take credit for it. Someone also said on Twitter, um, uh, well, you called Olivia Coleman, you know, way m- many months out. And it was like I said for supporting, not lead doesn't count. I don't mm-hmm. count that as a prediction. Oh, I mean, I think you're being too hard on yourself, but uh, the posted on Joanna's computer doesn't lie. You had you had the knowledge um, way back when. That performance just has that kind of recognizable Academy alchemy to it. And I I don't know if that always shines through and wins in the end. Other things, you know, other mitigating factors come in. But that that performance is so stamped with a sort of more, quote unquote, like old school, traditional Academy kind of pick that um yeah it was it was an easy call to make without knowing the future yeah you know a lot of people talking about not only the win but the way that it played out and i liked the way that a hunter who sent in this text summed it up like i found tonight's telecast thought of an ending monumentally disrespectful to chadwick uh but it was also disrespectful to anthony hopkins who gave a career best performance that will now always come with a footnote um and that to me is the thing that was really sticking with me last night maybe less so now that like it was a weird ending it was a win that nobody expected including anthony hopkins it's a win for a great performance for someone who really deserves it, but it feels so tied up in all the weirdness that surrounded it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's really tough. I had a lot of debates with people 
both actually an Academy voter and, and a bunch of people who are not about sort of like, I don't know, it just raises bigger questions about, you know, what is a good Oscar win? We like to, we would like to, in an, in a perfect world, think of the Oscars as a merit based award. But as we talk about every year on this podcast, we know it's not. And so then I always like default to like, what does the, most like net good in the world if it's not a merit-based award sometimes it's a merit-based award i'm just like yes i'm so excited that like the the parasite won or something like that Mm -hmm. but like i just think i think anthony hoffman's the father is incredible but i just think like if if the oscars are not just about merit but also about politics and and being an ambassador for hollywood and like all sort of other things like chadwick boson winning would have meant so much to so many people. And Anthony Hop this Anthony Hopkins winning this does nothing for Anthony Hopkins other than put him in a really awkward position where he has to give like an I'm sorry speech from Wales the next morning. I Do don't you know. know. I, I mean? thought it was so, a pretty good speech. No, it was a good speech. I'm not saying it's a bad speech and I'm not saying he doesn't deserve the award, but like, does this improve Anthony Hopkins life or legacy to have this award? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think the the kind of fundamental thing about moments like like the one from last night is that all of this is arbitrary. And I think the question about like what should the Oscars be doing, like you know, just going after a good performance or being cognizant of like broader politics, is like either one. There's no rule, you know. And I think that increasingly we have seen a very understandable demand to address representation to address a diversity of perspectives and experiences and all that and i think that is a great mission for the academy to kind of modernize itself that doesn't mean that there's always going to be a perfect one-to-one relationship with that mission and what wins Mm -hmm. um i think the problem is that it's it is also about the academy and, and 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 their voting and 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 this this you know now really pervasive trouble that black actors have winning lead categories Mm -hmm. But also just a a ton of more technical granular thing of like this was a poorly programmed end of the evening because it assumed a risk that, you know, they they, it seemed that they kind of banked on Chadwick Boseman winning and that being the, the last note of the broadcast. And I just think that was too big a gamble to take. And you risked alienating you know, people from nominees and winners from both sides of things. And and I think that's um that was a, a sort of unforced error on the producer's part. Yeah. And the fact that there wasn't a backup plan if Chadwick Boseman didn't win, like that it just, you know, ended with I, I accept this award on his behalf. And there's this rumor going around that as far as I can tell has not been verified anywhere that Olivia Coleman was supposed to give a speech on behalf of Anthony Hopkins and somehow it didn't wind up happening. I don't know if that's the case. Obviously, it would have been great to see Olivia Coleman give a speech. It always is. I think that would have helped a little bit. But to me, the just like the basis is that they shouldn't have messed up the order. Like, and they probably never will again based on how this played out. Yeah. I mean, I think they're all agreeing with you right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think there are other issues about the order. I think, you know, toward the beginning of the show, it's my vague understanding that like international feature and the screenplay awards went first because they had nominees overseas and they didn't want to make them stay up till God, you know, yeah. knows what hour in the morning. But for a show that was really, really hanging on by a thread in terms of viewership already, even before the, the broadcast started, to go that long without like one of the bigger wins, I felt like that was a procedural mistake. I thought 
you know, regardless of the cynicism or however you want to read it of saving best actor for last on the hopes that Bozeman would win and it would be a big moment, having best picture third to last just felt like there you're, you're, you're kind of undermining your, your show's own sense of accumulation and momentum. It felt a little bit like Soderbergh and his, you know, co-producers took something that they like, but kind of messed with it for the sake of messing with it. It didn't really seem responsive to any pertinent demand to make those shifts. I did. Can I be a contrarian slightly, though? I, I, as much as I do think the Best Picture should go last, I liked Best Director going early, weirdly. Yeah, like sure. To not, not have them be back-to-back in that way. Um, you know, there's something about breaking it up. And, like, I didn't mind the momentum in the beginning. You know, that Regina King opener was so stellar. And yeah. then I think Laura Dern yeah. went pretty soon after that. Like, I think you did have some, like, star power energy there. And, the yeah, the, the way that that was all pulled together didn't bother me too much. It was really around, like, the second hour where I felt like the sagginess started to set in. I kind of agree with you. I don't I don't mind the shuffle in general. I think where Chloe's win landed, though, and Best Picture being moved forward, we got a couple questions about this, but um, I think that kind of swallowed her moment. And I know that, like, because that was a big historic moment and it felt kind of swallowed by other things. Mm-hmm. And and um, I, I know that she was presumed winner, so it's not like it was a big surprise moment. It didn't have like as much of the drama around it as Catherine Bigelow's win did, but it was still, she's still only the second woman ever to win Best Director and the first woman of color to do so. And I didn't feel that sense of that moment, you know, really celebrated in that ceremony. So here's my, maybe the time for my hot take, which is that I think the overall lack of like, you know, bigness and, you know, someone call it pomposity or like giant celebration, like tribute to the movies aspect of it, like the the scaled down nature of almost everything that happened in this. I thought it was mostly a net good, like for them to work with the space that they had, the ability that they had to gather people to make it feel different, to not pretend that they were in the Dolby Theater, like to not have montages and musical numbers and even that many jokes. Like there was something that worked for me about that. Like, even though it felt kind of dry, like, you know, then you get Laurel Howery showing up at the 11th hour and that felt strange. But kind of overall, like, the historical significance of Chloe Zhao's win would be there regardless. And the fact that the show didn't feel like they had to, like, trumpet themselves over and over again or apologize for running too long or, like, make all those kinds of jokes. Like, it ditched all of that and felt kind of more comfortable in its own skin as a result and maybe less of a good show, but I felt like a better overall experience for what they were able to do. I fully disagree. I know yeah, you do. Experience, experience for who, Katie? Probably the people in the room more than us, yeah. but also just for someone who like wants to watch, you know, I want to watch speeches and I want to watch like, you know, who's sitting next to each other. Like there was a lot of that in there. I missed the clips and I know we're going to get into the clips. Um, but Richard, you basically wrote in your review the the basic opposite that like it was laid back to the point that it, it, it wrecked itself. I think that there was an irony to the way this kind of, I think, makeshift auditorium within Union Station in L.A. was outfitted to look like a cabaret room with little table lamps and, you know, intimate table seating and then a, a small stage. In that, like, if you think about a cabaret, comedy, music, liveliness, and there was none of that. It totally, the whole, the, the way the show played out with this sort of deadly seriousness kind of mixed with this kind of touchy-feely kind of 
you know, sweetness. Like it, it, there was nothing cutting through that that was felt exciting or or bold or like televisual, really, even. And I just don't understand the thought process behind we're going to make a smaller Oscars and therefore it can't be as fun. Not mm. that the Oscars are always like known for being fun. I mean, that's, just, you know, there are four hour ceremonies with lots of boring bits, but like there didn't even seem to be an effort beyond the the one kind of Oscar trivia thing coming way too late to to make it a an experience for the people at home. I understand that that was not necessarily Soderbergh's and whoever else's mission, that it was mostly about honoring the nominees, giving them a nice little cocktail party in a beautiful outdoor space. They would come in for a little shift when they were when their categories were up and then f- shift back out. I'm sure it was a lovely experience in the moment, but like there is also a huge component of the Academy's work and and its mission and its finances that is dependent on people at home watching the show. And I don't think there were really any concessions given to that viewership, especially when you think about like the five nominated song performances that were in the pre-show were all really good. Yeah. And I don't know yeah. why they didn't put those in the main show. Yes, it would have extended the broadcast by another 20 minutes, but the broadcast was already over three hours. It was long already. Yeah. I did love the song performances so much. I mean, my argument for the songs in the pre-show was that it allowed the Oscars to just be longer. Like, it, you know, it, they felt leisurely the same way that the speeches felt leisurely. Like, it doesn't, you know, try to cram everything in there. They certainly could have done that as part of the broadcast. But also, like, it allowed the bigness of it. You know, like, if if they'd had them in the room performing the songs or, like, four of them, you know, not the um, not the Hoosific children, like, that would have felt more intimate, but it would have been less good television. So the idea of, like, you know, having the big outside the room stuff being beforehand and afterwards, maybe, and letting everything during the show itself like really be based in that room and that experience we're having together. That seemed to be the thought process behind it. I guess the question is, would anything have worked? You know, I think, yeah. I think no matter what, I, I think when I when I wrote the the review at the end of the night, I really was in some senses, and maybe this is me being irresponsible in my job, but like, I think I was a lot of me. There was a lot of my feeling in there, which was just like. This kind of glum, like, oh, well, this isn't it, you know, and I think that has much more to do with like what has transpired over the last, you know, 13 months and all of that just sort of distilled and emblemized by this kind of lackluster for me anyway, broadcast, um, which is maybe or definitely not a fair burden or demand to put on the producers of this broadcast. But they, I mean, they had a really, really tough brief put before them, but yeah. it. I, I don't know. I just it, it felt in some ways, I guess, a fitting kind of whimper for a really challenging year. Um, yeah. But I thought there were a lot of missed opportunities and a lot of um, poorly made choices. We got a couple um, subtext questions about like sort of in this vein. But, you know, my question is, and this is something that you talked about in the past, Katie, uh, about the Oscars. Like the reason the Oscars have value is that they confer value on films that might otherwise not be, you know, consumed by the general public, right? They get mm-hmm. people excited for something like a parasite or a moonlight or something like that. That's one of a few reasons why the Oscars have value. And like uh, the Oscars couldn't be everything it could be this year for, you know, the obvious reasons. But the thing that is really missing, I think, you know, this is something Daniel Kalia talked about in a in a post Oscars interview where he was like, you know, if people at home see a couple people win for this movie, maybe they'll get excited to go see that movie. So like a Judas and the Black Messiah or something like that. But without the clips, <laughs> without the descript, like you know, without the Oscars functioning as almost an ad for those movies, it becomes 
insular. We got one subtext question, you know, from someone who was watching with their mom. And they're like, usually my mom gets excited about the films afterwards because she's been educated about what they are and why she should be excited. But she walked away with none of that because it was like all people in a room talking about something, presuming that everyone watching already knows what they're talking about. Um, And I thought that was a really interesting take on it, you know? Yeah, I miss the clips. I really like the, like, Laura Dern looks everyone in the eye and tells them how great they are, part of it. You know, we've talked about this before. They did this at the Oscars, like, maybe a decade ago. I've always liked that part of it. Ideally, for me, you would get that and a clip, um, which I realize is kind of asking a lot. But when you got the clips, I think for the Best Picture presentation at the end especially, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm like, that's what I miss. I wish they'd done, like, maybe spaced out the Best Picture presentation so you would have gotten longer clips or trailers or something, like— there is – and then you think about the, like, actual ads for In the Heights and West Side Story that ran in the commercial breaks, and you're like, oh, man, I'm excited to see that. And maybe the argument is to just get people excited for movies that are coming as opposed to stuff we've been talking about for eight months. But it did feel like a, a missed opportunity there. Well, I think that's a great point, Katie, about about the kind of meted-out presentation of the Best Picture nominees throughout the evening. That is a long, long, long-standing Oscar tradition. And I don't know why that had to be thrown out with this kind of wheel reinvention. You know, like yeah. there was a lot of stuff that they eschewed from traditional broadcasts that had nothing to do with COVID, that had nothing to do really even with broadcast length, you know. And I just kind of feel like the producers of this broadcast used this opportunity to root out some of the stuff they personally didn't like or found kind of extraneous or whatever. And that, you know, that's their prerogative. But it felt a bit kind of, I guess, in some ways ignorant about why the Oscars ceremonies work when they'd work and what people like about them. Yeah. And if I mean, if it was just a show mostly for the people in that room, which is kind of what it's, you know, what kind of what it seems like you're saying, Katie, and kind of what it seems like, Mm -hmm. then, you know, it seems like it was successful, except for a very awkward ending. Do you know what I mean? And and so, yeah, the question is, in order to determine whether or not the show is successful, the question is, who is this show for? And if the answer is, it's not for you watching at home this year, really, not for not for the casual viewer watching at home this year, you know, then that's okay if that wasn't their intention. Do you know? Yeah. And, like, that might have been them accepting reality that, like, many right. of these movies have not been seen by that many. Feel special. And, then, you know, that's why you go through this heroic effort that they did to make it possible to have an in-person ceremony at all. Like, you know that they felt this more than anything in a Zoom award show that they've been doing so far this season. So I hope it feels worth it to them and the people who won to, like, to have gone through all of this, even if we're going to sit at home and, and scowl about it. Sorry, Richard, I didn't mean to make it sound like you're just sitting and scowling. You have very good points. No, I'm actually, <laughs> I, no, I mean, I, I, there, there was a lot I liked about it. The opening was fantastic. Yeah. Um, I just wish that energy had carried through. Um, I think I just, you know, I also, I think David Sims had tweeted out something like an old interview he did with Soderbergh about the Oscars where Soderbergh said, you know, it's really boring to be in the sh- at the show in person. It's much more fun to watch on TV. My ideal version would be not televised in a room, kind of like a party, kind of like the New York Film Critics Circle Dinner or something like that. He didn't cite the NYFCC directly, <laughs> but that's kind of what it sounded like. And it's like, yes, that's lovely, but then don't put it on TV. You know, yeah. I think the thing about making people who a lot of people who, if they're fortunate enough to not have to leave the house for work or whatever, have been you know stuck on their couches for over a year. To be like, hey, kind of peeking in our in our placid, chill cocktail party from home. It's like, no, we need some added value for us, you know. And I think that they kind of, and that's it's fine if they didn't want to do that, but like maybe pare down the broadcast and maybe don't make it such a big event to serve advertising dollars, etc. 
the, the equation just didn't really come together in terms of one for us, one for them. That's a that's a that's a good find. Uh, the Sims interview. Um, I want to drop in uh, Dan Feinberg from the Hollywood Reporter started his review of the ceremony with a quote from Ocean's Eleven, where he says, talking about uh, George Clooney character Danny Ocean talking about gambling. Right? He says the house always wins. Play long enough, you never change the stakes. The house takes you unless when that perfect hand comes along, you bet big and then you take the house. And that seemed to be sort of the I like in terms of the ending, this idea of like if we land this. Mm-hmm. This is going to be what a great way to end this. And like, we got a lot of questions about this, um, about the In Memoriam segment and why it felt so rushed. Um, and I rewatched the In Memoriam segment after I saw all the questions we got about it, um, because I didn't remember having that reaction initially. And I think one of the things that made it feel rushed was actually the music choice more than the pace of, of the of the clips. But I'm wondering if if they decide to go with like this sort of upbeat if Questlove decided to go with this sort of upbeat Stevie Wonder track under the In Memoriam because they were expecting they would have a very like much more emotional resonant In Memoriam-esque ending for the show and they didn't Mm. want to like double down on that do you know so so then it ripples back and impacts that segment I'm making a presumption but it ripples back and affects that segment as well you know I liked the In Memoriam and I noticed there was a part where it sped up in the middle but they just were including a lot of people and of course they have managed to leave people out like Jessica Walter and Adam Schlesinger which is a shame it feels like it happens every year and maybe they should be having us do their research um but I don't know. I like the effort they put into more inclusion there. And like in a show that didn't have any other montages, really, I guess, except for the Herschel um, presentations, it felt like that one really stood out and, and had a moment to itself. I mean, like I said, I mean, I was watching a little half distracted, um, as I always do. And so I didn't I didn't have that reaction to it. But it seemed to be a lot of people felt like it felt rushed. And in, and because it felt rushed, it felt disrespectful. Yeah. So and and like I was trying to figure out why and the the music choice is the only thing I could figure out. So I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts only from NPR. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Do you guys want to talk about the winners a little bit more? Yeah, and I want to agree with Richard. Like, I loved the opening. Um, I think we all were watching the opening and we were like, yes, this is going to be so cool. Yeah, and then the opening it, was really thrilling. And then sort of the idea of like, this is going to be a movie, that sort of notion. Maybe, it's, maybe, maybe an issue is a disconnect between what we were told it was going to be versus what it felt like it was because the opening did feel like it was fulfilling that sort of like, this is a Steven Soderbergh film brief. And then that's went away pretty quickly. Um, But anyway, yeah, let's talk about some winners. Yeah. I mean, I think the challenge is like, you can have all the cool plans you want, but you also got to hand out 23 awards in three hours. And um, that's hard. 
So, yeah, we should probably talk about the second to last award of the night, which is Best Actress, which, you know, we had spent so much time fretting over and who was going to win. And then um, kind of like Anthony Hopkins, the person who you maybe thought was going to win last June one is Frances McDormand, um, who had just been up there to um, help give the speech for Nomadland. She gave a very short speech. I think it was in the Nomadland one where she talked about how we should see movies in theaters. So by the time yeah. Best Actress came, she wasn't up there for very long. I don't know. I mean, I, I had predicted Violet Davis last week, along with maybe all of us. So um, that was a twist. Well, credit to our Julie Miller, who wrote the Best Actress section for VF's official predictions and picked McDormand. Ah, mm-hmm. see? We That's were, why. I, I think we were one of three of the major outlets on some sort of grid I saw that had her winning. Um, and we were right. So, or Julie was right. Because <laughs> yeah. I certainly did. <laughs> I was wrong. I was not predicting that. And I wasn't predicting that months ago either. So I thought the narrative, yeah, the narrative was that it was down to Francis or Viola. And I was stubbornly clinging to Carrie as my like heart pick or whatever. But, um, but yeah. And, and I think that contributed to that sense of a rush ending because Francis did save the juice for the earlier speech she gave, which is the best picture speech. If she had given her best actress speech and about going to the theaters, um, which was the major moment of the night that was about going back to movie theaters, which it seemed like maybe they would have taken more opportunities to, to beat that drum. I, I think, you know, the ending and, and again, and also, Okay, I'm sorry. I just I think I I think the ending like a vortex keeps sucking me back into talking about this. So we, we don't have to. It's but the yeah. Joker dragging you back down those stairs. <laughs> good job, good job to Julie. I think the question going into the night that we had last week was how much do they like Nomadland? And I think that was why everyone was kind of like shuffling around. Like, is there going to be a Best Picture Surprise? It's like France is not going to win. And I think the answer in the end was that they did really like Nomadland. And I think they didn't like Ma Rainey that much, which we knew to some degree it didn't get a Best Picture nomination, didn't get a Best Director. It did win hair and makeup and costumes, you know, it, and we had talked last week about that was an easy pick in both of those categories. Um, but I think the Viola Davis thing most likely belongs to that more than anything. I mean, Viola Davis is obviously very beloved. I think the movie just didn't hit people. And that was part of the Chadwick Boseman loss as well. Yeah, it didn't, you know, it, I think it all, it didn't get an adapted screenplay nomination for Ruben Santiago Hudson. Like it just, you know, there are obviously many mitigating factors within that, that have nothing to do with just the simple Academy vote, which is a lot to kind of unpack. But um, Nate Jones at Vulture wrote something about like kind of a list long, you know, paragraph Mm -hmm. form list about why Hopkins might've won again over Chadwick Boseman in Ma Rainey. And one of the things was that the Academy is more international now and that the specific Americanness of Ma Rainey, for whatever reason, might not have connected the way that the sort of, you know, that this Belgian director with a Welsh actor doing The Father might have. I don't know how much I see that reflected in the fact that like Nomadland, which is a very American movie, sure. won, and Minari, which is a very American movie, won, you know, albeit yeah. it was a K- Korean actor who won the prize for Minari, but you know, it's about America, that movie to some extent. I think it's a shame that the Marini of it all has gotten sort of tied up in in these questions of, um, you know, actor prizes when I think the actual whole of the movie is pretty interesting, too. But um, I don't know that last night's showing for that movie is enough to get people to turn, you know, find it on Netflix. However, Colin Domingo, who is in Marini and um, was on the is hosting the after show with um, 
and your annals looked amazing. So there's that from our Yes, that's true. That's true. I mean, I think I think um, the, it's also unfortunate, you know, one to sort of punch of like if the Viola narrative was the violent narrative was so strong going into Sunday. And even though I like, I was a little confused by it because it felt like it came in at the end and then people felt so sure about it and stuff like that. I, I don't know. Like, but if Viola is an expected win and Chad was an expected win for, in a lot of people's minds, whether or not, you know, that was like the double impact of that not happening and two older white actors winning for roles that are, more traditionally awarded by the Academy can feel to those people who are expecting it, like a uh, sort of regressive choices, even though I think Anthony Hopkins is great in the father, even though I think Francis McDormand is great in Nomadland, it felt like and those things coming one, two right at the end, in a sense erases a lot of the other incredible, um, interesting choices that were made earlier in their ceremony. It doesn't erase it, but I just mean like for the impact. Can I can I bring in a subtext question from Stephanie that I think is pertinent here? Yes. Um, Stephanie wrote in, do you have any thoughts on posthumous awards? I wonder if someone gets the nom, they should automatically get an honorary Oscar. I feel like this show especially highlighted how awkward it can get when someone's career gets tied up in one nomination that they might not win. And that prompted me to do some like late night dive into like posthumous awards and who has won them and, and who hasn't and stuff like that. You know, and obviously we know that like Keith Ledger won his, Peter Finch was his, those are some famous ones. Howard Ashman won posthumously. But there are a lot of people, you know, Anthony Minghella, Sidney Pollack, James Dean lost twice, two years in a row and stuff like that. And so it's like, and that was not, and that was not a referendum on James Dean's legacy, obviously, right? Like James Dean is yeah. still an icon despite losing two uh, posthumous awards in 56 and 57. So like, I think it is uh, maybe like, a, a tricky vortex. I think I use vortex twice in this podcast, um, you know, <laughs> to find yourself in, uh, you know, this is not the only thing that will confer value on Chadwick Boseman's, you know, life and work and legacy. And for the whole story to be tied up in this one thing it is a little tricky. And I think someone else wrote in and asked, like, wouldn't it have been, would it have been better for the Academy to announce like some sort of scholarship or some sort of something else or something automatically honor honoring Chadwick Boseman, um, and not tying it all up in this one thing that they don't have any ultimate control over. Do you know? I, I think that this is a, a conflict or a dichotomy or something that a show like the Oscars is never going to be able to reconcile fully, which is that people, all kinds of nominees come into that ceremony with all different levels of, you know, intensity and desire. And I, I'm, I think most people in the room probably want to win. I think even someone like Frances McDormand, who has tried to, you know, not has acted in previous award speeches at the Tonys or wherever, a little bit like, eh, okay, this is all bullshit, like, whatever. <laughs> she clearly cares. I mean, she's there, she's showing up, she's giving speeches, whatever. But what does that mean as much to her as the first time nominee from a small film or, you know, the, the, the foreign, the international feature that from a country that's never been nominated before, like the stakes might feel higher for those people. And that's okay. That's unavoidable. I think that it goes back to the problem of the production where in a traditional Oscar ceremony, at least those people who are going in at full a hundred, like this is like the biggest night of my life and they lose, they get the pomp and circumstance still mm -hmm. they get the glitz they get the glamour i understand that was not possible this year and that's unfortunate but the casual sort of like 
tone of the show, I think more did more to help the people who were going in with maybe slightly less of a an emotional stake in the evening. And that's partly why everything felt so weird and unbalanced. You can never reconcile that for a posthumous nominee. You know, no matter what that person's family, loved ones, etc. That is a real kind of that is an unescapably big moment for them. And it is unfortunate that they leave maybe with a new sort of addition to their grief. And I don't know how to reconcile that. I, I, I think that maybe Stephanie's idea that like you do get some sort of honorary award is a nice one because it doesn't happen all that often anyway. So it's not like you're right. giving out honorary awards every year. Yeah. I mean, Talk- Joanna, your James Dean tweet really um, cl- just clarified it for me because I think I have used James Dean in the past as thinking about how Chadwick Boseman's legacy is going to play out for the next century, like as someone who was so iconic in a really short career that ended way too soon. Yeah. Um, and I think you're exactly right. Like, he, Chadwick Boseman's face is going to be like included in murals of Hollywood for the rest of our lives. And the Oscar was not going to change that. Like in some ways, like he would have been referred to as an Oscar winner, but like this is not the role he was going to be remembered for. So it it would have been, of course, a beautiful thing to have as part of his legacy, but like he is going to be James Dean. He, that is not, nothing about this is going to diminish that. Right. And I think, I think Heath Ledger being the more recent instance I think the the same would have been true for Heath Ledger had he lost, do you know, yeah. that that award, you know, and, and it's it's about it's something about like, you know, the youth, the burning brightly, the burning briefly sort of thing. Yeah. So so I don't know that, that it's it's an interesting question, but like, it, you know, for people to hinge this idea of Chad Bozeman's entire worth on this win and then feel which which I'm not saying a lot of people were doing, but like that sort of felt like how it felt. It felt like a disrespect to Chadwick Boseman rather than, and which is, I'm sure, not what anyone who voted for Anthony Hopkins meant for it to be. Do you know? And um, I think a lot of people probably voted for Anthony Hopkins assuming Chadwick Boseman would win. I think there are some anonymous ballots to that effect. Correct. That's what I've heard a lot of people say is that everyone voted, well, I'm going to vote for Anthony Hopkins. Everyone else is going to vote for Chadwick Boseman. He'll win anyway, but I will feel square with my God of acting because I voted for Anthony Hopkins. And that feels right to me. You know what I mean? So, yeah. I think the God of acting has Anthony Hopkins's face, actually. It's, it's weird, true. Um, it's true. Got there. It's, it's, it's he's Odin from Thor. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we talk every year, I think, about how we would love to see the the. Um, vote percentages, but my guess is that the best actor and best actress races were all very close, at least in the best actor between Hopkins and Bozeman. Well, what's so funny, the the, the interesting like liquid movement around this <laughs> conversation is, you know, we found out a little in advance, uh, the night of, but still a little in advance that they had moved the acting category to the end, right? And so um, we were going like, well, sur- surely they wouldn't do that unless they knew for certain Chadwick Boseman. And then when it hit the viewers at home, um, you know, with only like, I don't know, 20 minutes left or 15 minutes left, they were they were like, oh, well, so much for the secrecy. They surely must know who's going to win. And then by the end yeah. of the ceremony, everyone's like, well, we now know absolutely for certain <laughs> that Pricewaterhouse does not tell who wins these awards in advance. Yeah. Um, all right. We want to go back to the winners again? Yeah. Yes. I, I yes. feel like this is a hallmark of our post-Oscar episodes. Of just like, but wait, this thing, you know, the the loose conversation is what they come here for. I, I wanted to say something about um, Nomadland's, you know, victories at the award show. Yeah. I was so surprised that they lost cinematography. Mm-hmm. That was and, and, and for a movie, I mean, again, this is like the kind of media bubble, not 
being necessarily in conversation with the Academy where it was like, but Mank's kind of a joke. Like people make Mank jokes all the time. Like how could they give that, you know, but it's like, that's, <laughs> they're not on they're, Twitter. They don't there know. There are very different rubrics being applied to that. But I just thought that like the bigger momentum with director and picture and actress, I, the cinematography is such an integral part of that movie. It is like the second lead. Um, <laughs> I, 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 that was just boggling to me how that happened. Can I give some credit to our, our friend and sometimes guest and future, very soon future guest, Joe Reed, who pointed out um, to me and Joanne, I think you were there as well, that black and white wins a lot yeah. in this I was like, I was like, Katie, right. where were we? I, I, I did Oscar talk on like three different podcasts the other week. So I was like, where was I when someone smart said black and white always wins cinematography? Yeah, it was Joe Reed. Was Zoom trivia. That. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Zoom but trivia. I think that just Joe speaks Reed. to like the fact that the Academy needs to get rid of the ghost membership. I mean, it, it's just, it's boring. <laughs> I don't need Mary Pickford's opinions on 2020 cinematography. Yeah, weirdly, they have the power to talk to ghosts, but they only have them vote on the Oscars. It's a terrible waste. Yeah. I am going to use this rubric, though, in the future and be like, well, black and white must be cinematography winner. And I'll feel very smart. Thank you, Joe Reed. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to go back through because like Roma one is the uh, the most recent example here. And I'm trying to figure out what the one before that was. And I'll, I guess, the, the artist question. Uh, the art, the artist did uh, not win. It lost to Hugo. Anyway, oh. Um yeah, the Mank one was a surprise. Uh, it also won production design, I believe. Um, and there was this really cute moment uh, backstage where the three of them were all together, like at the thank you cam, um, like shoving each other in front of the camera and talking about their work together, which I, was cute. Which I really liked. Yeah, yeah. we talked about Ma Rainey winning um, hair and makeup as well as um, costumes. And then uh, Soul won two awards, both of which we expected. Um, but I did love the uh, John Batiste, Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross speech where... Uh, John Batiste gave the speech and the other two guys stood behind him with like their hands folded like at waist level that they look like bodyguards. <laughs> they were just like, standing there <laughs> silently, which I, I really enjoyed. Um, well, but it, I thought it, he gave a great speech. It reminded me of the of the like Watchmen Emmy moment when like uh, Watchmen wins and Damon Lindelof just like steps back and lets like other people give the speeches because he's like, I've gotten to give my speech. Like, mm-hmm. you go ahead, you know, and like Trent and Atticus have won before. So they're like, yeah. you, you go ahead. It prompted someone to write in and ask us like if there was a um, a brief from Soderbergh at all to pick one person to speak. Um, but that seemed an inconsistent choice. In some winners, it seemed like it was one person. And, you know, in that one win, I forget which it was, it was like bizarrely the one person who wasn't in the room. Yeah, was giving um, a speech. that was weird. That was visual effects, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, for Tenet, yeah. Um, but it, it sort of went back and forth because there were plenty of ones where both. Uh, so I don't know that it was like a, a, a an unofficial rule, maybe a guideline. Yeah. Well, we had a person. question um, from Jennifer, which is, were the acceptance speeches too long? or she said leisurely, mm-hmm. um, which was a recurring theme on Twitter. Um, you know, I am fully on the side of long acceptance speeches, and I thought that it was worth it overall, but I don't know where you guys landed. If it's the show that you wanted Kate, or, 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 or are describing, <laughs> right, which is like, it's for the people in the room, uh, and if it's and if it's like the you know like yes, and and I didn't mind it. Like I liked um, Questlove. I think said something on Twitter about like right. So the music was there was obviously no orchestra. It was all pre-recorded music that Questlove was like DJing, and he said something about on Twitter about like I was the first thing I said was you know what should be my playoff music, and they told me there would be no playoff music. So like you know they they were they they gave their guidance about speeches, but they were not going to curtail anyone giving a speech. Um, And I, yeah, I I didn't mind it, honestly. I thought it was also funny during the pre-show, 
uh, Lil Rel Howery, who I thought did a great job at that pre-show. Yeah, he um, really did. He was set to interview Chloe Zhao and after a commercial break, and it cut to him, and he was just in conversation with her, not realizing that they were on live and (laughs) Zhao kept being like, uh, like pointing to the camera and he wasn't picking up what she was saying, but he was, he was kind of in the middle of a sentence being like, it's just weird to be, to see people. And I thought it was so relatable. And like, I thought, I thought that people kind of kept saying that during the pre-show being like, it's very, even like Reese Witherspoon was like, it's really strange to be out in the world. And I think a little bit of that, like people relearning how to like socialize carried through into the acceptance speeches. Yes, they were a little rambling, but it was kind of like, hey, I haven't really done anything remotely (laughs) like this for a year. So I'm just going to kind of extemporaneously talk about my parents having sex (laughs) and in Daniel Kaluuya's case or whatever. Um, while she, his mother looked horrified, uh, <laughs> you know, in London, um, I thought that was endearing that, that it was like, well, that's probably going to be me at a party with, you know, lower stakes granted, like yeah. in the next few months, like being like, or backyard something or other, just being like, I have no idea how to communicate to people anymore. <laughs> and then you get like Thomas Vinterberg's speech where he's talking for a long time and it kind of like leads him up to being able to talk about his daughter and you yeah. know, the story about how she yeah. died basically as he was getting production on this film. Um, and that was such a touching moment and you wouldn't have gotten it if you had like played him off after 30 seconds. I think it, it really spoke to the, to the value of that. Can I ask? I don't recall that being in like a narrative. Around it was in. It was in some of the pieces about it. Like I don't okay. know how strong of a like narrative that was, especially because a lot of the attention went to Mads Mikkelsen. Um, but yeah, it's like it's a really devastating story that goes oh, into it, this movie about like you know appreciating the life that you have, which is a fascinating. It was a beautiful uh, speech. That was maybe one of my favorite speeches. Um, yeah, to, to Richard's point, um, Stephen Young gave this great. Red car early, red carpet interview um, on E to Juliana Rasek, where where he was like, it was the second interview he gave, and at the end he was like, was that okay? She's like, yeah. He's like, I haven't talked to anyone. My last <laughs> interview I just gave was I'm pretty sure gibberish. He's like, I don't know how to talk anymore, and I'm so sorry. Uh, and yeah, so just bearing that in mind uh, about the added awkwardness of it all. So yeah. Um, I want to talk about the shorts since we went into so much detail on them um, a couple weeks ago. Um, we were all uh, completely correct about animated and live action, which went to If Anything Happens, I Love You and Two Distant Strangers. And then I don't think any of us predicted Colette to win the doc short, but I'm not mad about it. I loved that movie. Um, I think we were on the podcast where we predicted. I think we were like, but it could go to Colette. I think yeah, we were kind of careful to say yeah. that that was a close second yeah. place to Love Song for Latasha. So we didn't. we weren't completely off base. Yeah. But that's but even, an example of like the older story of the Academy is still present. You know, Colette. Yeah, was the a, Holocaust documentary yeah, winning. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm 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 completely fine with us getting two out of three, and 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 I wrote the uh, predictions for the website, so we got two out of three, which is better than a lot of people do. Sort of stabbing around in the dark at home uh, on the shorts category. So yeah, yeah. Although it did not help me in my Oscar pool at all, but that's more Anthony Hopkins' fault. The Colette win was fine. I mean, it's an interesting film. I think that the love song for Latasha is much more of a, you know, creatively mounted film. Colette is very just like, here's an interesting person that we're going to follow with a camera kind of unstylishly, you know. But that's fine. It was an interesting subject matter and, and also a sort of, ver, you know, version of a Holocaust narrative that I hadn't seen before where it was like a French resistance person, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, in the feature documentary category, however... I know that we kind of thought My Octopus Teacher would win because it just seemed to have momentum. But when you looked at all of the movies it was up against and compared it to that, it was like, wow, that is actually kind of one of the most glaringly 
Oscar's gonna Oscars thing from the whole night. Mm. Like there were so there were some really really robust, fascinating, vital documentaries nominated and not nominated and then this beautifully filmed movie about a guy's midlife crisis and an octopus like i was like i don't that's so <laughs> strange to me that that does that speak to netflix's you know like netflix wins what two out of three shorts and the doc and and i think they're and two from already right well but that, that they're having like over the past few years, I think we're seeing increasing success for Netflix in the shorts and in the doc categories. Yeah. And maybe it's, you know, the, the best picture still remains elusive to them. But like maybe whatever they're doing around those to get awareness for those projects is a winning strategy. Um, yeah. And docs is where they first broke in. Um, I think their first Oscar nomination came for it might have been a doc short and then they well, I'm going to get my facts wrong, but Netflix had success in docs before yeah. they kind of broke in anywhere else. Right, right, right. Um, you know, Wait, I, I wanted agree, to talk about, oh, sorry. I want to talk about Netflix more, but you can finish your thought. Oh, I was just going to say, I agree with you, Richard. And I also just want to say quickly that like, you know, we were pretty sure Two Distant Strangers was going to win. Um, we outlined on the shorts episode, you know, why we did not think that was a great film. But as Katie said in our work slack, like after the win, she was just like, this is going to be a great speech. And it was a good speech. But I have to say that, like, if if the subject matter of Two Distant Strangers is something that people wanted to throw their support behind, I really wish it come behind Love Song for Latasha, which I think was a much better treatment of a similar question in our society. So, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the Netflix of it all, because I do think uh, this is the second year in a row, if I'm getting my math right, that uh, the, uh, Netflix has had a film come in with a ton of nominations uh, and get zero. That'd be uh, Child of Chicago 7 this year and um, The Irishman last year. Last year, The Irishman had the most nominations of anything and didn't win. Mank did get two Oscars. You know, like they are a favorite punching bag because they are on top and everyone kind of wants to like make them the big bad. And Fox Searchlight or Searchlight, which um, won Best Picture with Nomadland, is now owned by Disney, which is the other big competitor kind of in the entire industry. Um, I mean, Netflix, as we know, spends so much money um, on award season every year. And this is what they've come back with. Do you feel like that's a failure for them? Do you do you is there a Netflix bias in, at play in, say, Viola Davis not winning? I, I don't know. I, I think uh, you know, I can't speak to the you know Academy voter, obviously, as many years of doing this podcast have proven. But I think so, at this point, it's almost like because especially this year when or this last year where everyone was watching everything at home, the difference between a Netflix movie and everything else didn't wasn't as stark, I guess. I think it was just that like Netflix had a lot on the table and was thus probably going to walk away having lost a lot. Um, sure. Yeah, I, I think that probably the, you know, the postmortem, if any, that's being done over there might be perhaps we need more parasites and nomad lands and not quite as many Chicago sevens and Manx, you know, and Ma Rainey's even these much more traditional sort of things. Um, maybe their prestige armed, you know, Roma certainly was, was that to some extent. Um, if they're going to even continue doing the prestige stuff, I think they will until they really get their, you know, the top prizes they want will veer more towards the, daring or the sort of more even more auteury i guess um yeah. which would be an interesting development or they just or nothing and it's just kind of written off as like well you know we had a lot there we did win some awards um net gain 
It's funny because when you think like the difference narrative-wise, like they're very different movies, but like Nomadland and Roma in terms of like very original like creations from their writer-director or from their, you know, their directors who feel strongly about it, who are fascinating figures, who the industry wants to celebrate. Like those are, those could be really similar movies in terms of award narratives. And Roma won Best Director and, you know, there's nothing to cry about there. But I don't know. It's, it's, it's not like Netflix is not making big gambles on big auteurs, but it's just not going the same way. Let me ask a question which might reveal some ignorance about <laughs> a lot of things, maybe. But like um, to invoke the name of, of uh, another podcast from our pals, um, these Netflix movies feel like blank check movies, right, for for these creators. Netflix has lured these creators uh, to their platform by saying, you're going to get to make whatever you want to make. And here's the check to do so. That's not the sense of what Nomadland was, right? Like that is a filmmaker making the most, creatively making the most, uh, you know, like Chloe Zhao's blank check movie is Eternals for Marvel, you know what I mean? Like in its own way, but like, but um, that sort of scrappy, like independent vibe of Nomadland is not what we've seen around those Netflix films, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Well, I wanted to talk about um, Nomadland and Searchlight as well, because last week, um, you know, a couple of days before the Oscars, the news broke that uh, the people who've been charged the studio for decades, uh, Steve Jalula and Nancy Etley, are leaving. And they're being replaced by these two guys who have been the heads of production at Searchlight for uh, almost as long. So, you know, there is a, a handover of power from within the people who have made Searchlight such a massive success. Um, but, you know, this comes, what, two years after Disney bought the company. Um, the timing doesn't seem great for what Searchlight might be in the future. Like, they have been such a beacon of how you can shepherd these gorgeous, really individualistic films in the studio system. And them being bought by Disney seemed a little worrisome, given Disney's pretty relentless focus on IP. And I don't know, I I feel anxious about it. Well, there was there was some chatter or grumbling online last night about Disney sending out a press release kind of, you know, in, in certain people's minds, taking credit for Nomad's Land, Nomadland's win when they really had nothing to do with it. I mean, they probably like paid for the awards campaign or something. Well, yes, but I mean, in, in terms of like the, they didn't green light the, you know, sure, the thing. Sure. Um, they platformed it on Hulu too, which is a way that a lot of people saw it, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. No. It, I mean, they were involved, of course. You know. I don't mean but, to be like, but, let me defend the scrappy underdog Disney. I hear what you're saying, but it is weird. It is weird. Um, whenever that happens, I have a weird reality check where I'm like, oh, right, that's a Disney movie, technically. Yeah. Like Ford versus Ferrari or whatever was was the one that I thought of yeah. last year. So, yeah, exactly. Go ahead. I, I do think, though, it you know, however cynically we want to read Disney kind of taking credit for that. Is it maybe at all heartening that they would send the press release at all? Like are, that they are invested in movies yeah. like that winning awards for the company? Yeah. Um, you know, I think oftentimes we've talked about Netflix and this sort of ego thing. It's like it's not it's like their loss leader. They're they're just like trying to get that brass ring, even though they have all the other brass rings. Yeah. Um, and that's oftentimes enough to sustain uh, financing for interesting things that might otherwise not get financing. So I hope that at least that 
you know, awards greed or whatever you want to call it that exists it's somewhere at Disney will help Searchlight uh, stay on its you know course or develop you know towards better things uh, rather than you know a kind of slow folding into the franchise IP world that is the rest of the company. Yeah, this is the like the ongoing value and kind of hope of the Oscars, which is that it is a thing that these incredibly rich people who might otherwise only care about their bottom line want. And they are willing to finance things that are daring and bold and from people who, you know, have a you know, haven't made as many films before. Like if they're willing to take risks to win Oscars, that it is to all of our net gain, I think. So we can all be grateful that Disney remains as invested as they are to this point at least. Though so the Nomadland team sort of in some ways revealing last night that Swanky's still alive did kind of feel like they were just setting up a sequel. <laughs> the extended uh, Nomadland universe is going to be, it's going to be, it's going to tie into Eternals eventually, right? And that Fran was indeed not Fern. I mean. Yeah. Um, we should say really quickly, can I just say really quickly, I'm, I'm sure most people have heard, figure this out by now, but some people were wondering why Francis McDormand decided to howl. And honestly, like, there could be a million reasons why, but the real reason is that um, the sound designer um, or sound mixer, I think it is, on um, Nomadland, who had worked with Cloja before on the writer, um, had recently passed away. He was in the In Memoriam and his name was Wolf. So they, yeah. you know, she led the big howl. Then the people behind her, including Cloja, were uh, howling in response for him. I thought that was kind of pretty beautiful. Are there any other little specific things we should get into? Uh, I still am puzzling over uh, Andrew Day, who, when asked about Purple Rain, seemed to be like shit talking the Academy. You yep. got bleeps, so it's hard to tell what was going on. But, you know, not that that's not something we would all say in our living rooms, but it was a fascinating thing to watch someone at the Oscars, like possibly she could very well have won like minutes later. It was, it was fascinating. That segment was really interesting because, I mean, not, not just because Glenn Close did the but, but like because. My interpretation of her saltiness was like, yeah, same as it ever was. Like, you know, these people are not getting acknowledged for culturally relevant music. Yeah. Um, you know, no surprise to me that the Academy wouldn't honor that uh, or nominate that. You know what I mean? So it felt like if, it, you know, we know that the Glenn Close part was pre-planned. I don't know that like this part was pre-planned. I'm, I'm assuming probably it was. But yeah, that, that seemed to me to be the tenor of her um, reaction there. Which, you know, it's probably a useful thing for some people in the Academy to be like, yes, on our vaunted history to know that, like, there are still things from the past that sting and that people recognize that there's a lot of, you know, bad historical track record to make up for. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of Glenn Close and Debut, which she did, uh, you know, a while after she had uh, lost Best Supporting Actress to Yu Zheng Yun, which um, we haven't talked about yet. She gave a great speech. We all knew at this point that she gives great speeches. Um, but uh, there were two expect acceptance speeches, if you count Anthony Hopkins on Instagram, of the winner apologizing to the person they beat uh, with Yu Zheng Yun, like mentioning Glenn Close, which is the second time that's happened to Glenn Close because Olivia Coleman did it, too. I think we're all mostly relieved she didn't win for Hillbilly Elegy, but... Uh, I'm so tired of just talking about how Glenn Close hasn't won an Oscar. I want her to just win it so she can, like, go dance in a movie if she wants to. I mean, again, um, not to <laughs> out myself as an, an avid E-watcher, but, like, um, Juliana, Juliana, who's one of the best on the red carpet that there is. I love her. I think she's great at her job. She had to yell her questions over, like, a hedge um, in this, like, social distance <laughs> setup on E, but, like, she was asking in close about where she was going to put her Oscar, and Glenn gave a really good answer, but I was just like, uh, please don't ask Glenn those questions. I like, know. I 
she's been asking for so long and now it's you know anyway her answer was she's going to take it to her local coffee shop so everyone could touch it and i was like well that's or a, a library or a library yeah. i, I love that great um yeah i think that it's so nice i mean I, I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit about the debut thing because it was so planned and just sort of like i don't know variety of reasons i was like this feels fun but also a little cynical um but it was such a viral thing that like the story really isn't so much that she lost at the Oscars again. It's like, oh, Glenn Close was there, like having fun, you know, and and yeah. added some liveliness. So I think that's that's great for her. But I think, you know, like you said, Katie, t- just now, but also last night, like, yeah, free her up. Let her be silly for a while and maybe something organically will will happen uh, versus this feeling. And I don't think it's really an, on her part, really. It's more on us. But this feeling like that she's been plugging away for the past decade, just trying to get that Oscar movie in there. Um, if that eased up, maybe, uh, good things would come. Yeah. Um, should shout out Brad Pitt and his ponytail. I loved seeing him. I missed Brad Pitt. Um, yeah. I, although I like, I did really like Yojongyun being like, well, where were you? Why, why weren't you on set? <laughs> like, <laughs> where were you while we were in Oklahoma filming this movie producer of this movie? I thought that was kind of great. Um, yeah. Anything else? I mean, we've talked about the format of the show so much. I think. I don't know that there are any lessons to learn from this year's because it was such an off year other than maybe don't mess with the order. Um, like anything else that we're, we're going to take away with us into the next year. Um, well, can I ask one one other question about the ending? What do you think was the rationale between having Renee present the actresses and Joaquin present the actors? I don't know. That was strange. Just change for change's sake, honestly. Like, but I, they did, Laura Dern did Daniel Kaluuya. Like, yeah. they did it the usual way for the supporting category. Yeah. I was just wondering if they thought for some reason that Joaquin would, like, be better equipped to handle the moment than Renee. But I don't know what in Joaquin's awards history, like, wearing a hoodie to the Golden Globes, gave them any idea that he would have, like... And also, okay, here's the thing. Okay, so so the the Oscar host question, which is something we've debated for a long time, and, and Regina kicking off the awards in the way that she did acted as sort of de facto host for, like the opening little bit and she did a great job like when Regina was at the helm like everything felt like it was going well but like you know we, we've talked ad nauseum about why the Oscar host is like a thankless job and no one wants to do it etc cetera, etc cetera. but like if there had been a host in that final moment if there had been a Jimmy Kimmel like it the ceremony wouldn't have ended the way that it did with a Phoenix shrug do you know mm-hmm. right yeah and so, uh, you know, I, I would just make make the case again that, like, I think we do need a host at the Oscars. I don't know who they will convince to do it, but, like, I I think it's a necessary thing to have because you don't... Like, I was thinking about the La La Land Moonlight moment, which is obviously the one that most people thought of when they, when they were sort of confronted with this ending. And, like... Kimmel didn't do a ton, but he did plenty like to sort of to sort of smooth everything over and just sort of like introduce control to a chaotic moment. And um, and I I think that would have been really helpful here. Yeah. Yeah. The show shouldn't feel like some rudderless thing that is just sort of prisoner to its own weird momentum. You know, it it, it, like there, there, there should be someone steering things. That's why you have a host to kind of like bridge the gaps to be the glue to set a tone here and there. Um, and that was sorely missed, I think, throughout the show, good as Regina King was at the beginning. They still could have had that whole moment. And then right. there would be, a you know, um, I think also think that, like, if any year, like, in some ways, this year demanded a big summative jokey monologue at the top of the show. 
mm-hmm. like being like, all right, guys, like what a fucking year. Like, you know, and, and just but also then there's another chance to be like to single out movies, to single out performers, to give people a sense of the context that was otherwise so lacking in the show. We talk so fondly all the time about the Billy Crystal <laughs> like openers and like, yes, they're cheesy and corny, but like Billy Crystal injecting himself into films is a is a, you know goes back to that earlier thing of like is a way to help folks at home know what films we're even talking about you yeah. know what i mean yeah or or have Hugh Jackman sing about it like whatever you decide to do it um i think it's you know and once again this is this is just an unusual year i think they did a lot of uh really great fun smart things like someone asked us about something that that Katie uh, mentioned shouted out in the slack which is that the two women wearing the biggest ball gowns which were Carrie Mulligan and who was the other one Amanda Seyfried Amanda Seyfried were sort of positioned as bookends on the top <laughs> tier <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Like, so that their beautiful skirts could spill out and whether or not, like, the stylists confer with the seating chart or whatever to I let hope them know. So. I hope a lot of planning went into that because it looked great. <laughs> it looked great. Yeah. So. Speaking, um, speaking of looking great, do you think, so my birthday is in about a month. Do you mm-hmm. think that's enough time to book that beautiful outdoor thing at Union Station? Oh, it was yeah. so gorgeous. Although I have read some stuff that, like, it really fucked with, like, commuters' lives and stuff, like, and for displaced a month. And hom- displaced the homeless population. Yeah, it's, and yeah. it wasn't a good yeah. thing. But in a vacuum... Um, I thought that was like a lovely treatment to that space. And although, again, it made me sitting on my couch yet again, being like, all right, I I sort of just want to be there. I don't want to be watching this from a remove. Yeah. Um, Well, maybe I'll end with some what you got one question looking forward to the future. And we can uh, go ahead and reveal that uh, next week we're doing our 2022 Oscar predictions. Usually we wait a little while, but uh, good Lord, are we all ready to talk about new movies? Um, So we'll have to read back to talk about that. Um, But we got a ahead. Sorry, those predictions already started when Ariana DeBose, who was doing the pre-show with Lil Rel Howery, was speaking to the president of the Academy. And he was like, maybe we'll see you next year. And she goes, maybe you will. You know, could be. Who knows? See what I did there? And it's like, she's already primed to get an Oscar nomination for playing Anita in West Side Story. I thought she did such a great job, too. I thought she, she like, was she, great. She had like 125% energy, but like that is what that really called for. Um, and for, you know, we don't know who she is at all. And she's like introducing herself to audiences. So anyway, I mean, so there were trailers for West Side Story and In the Heights during I don't think there were trailers for anything else. Like maybe there was like Disney Plus ads, but I don't. I'm not forgetting any other trailers, am I? No, I think it was just the warring musicals. <laughs> oh, well, there was City also Street that, dance musicals. that Nine Perfect Strangers show from Hulu with Melissa wow, McCarthy that was and Nicole so, Kidman. And, yeah, I had not. I'd never heard of that show's existence at all. Um, oh, I had. But anyway, um, we got a question yeah. from Katie. It's like if next year's Oscars will be dominated by big budget studio movies like West Side Story in the Heights, or if they'll um, have smaller films that were made during um, the pandemic, and maybe there'll be a balance of both. Um, I don't know. I'll probably have to think about it more until next week, but I would guess we're going to get a return to spectacle big time. Yeah, because I think that yeah. smaller productions, it's probably a lot of them couldn't afford to even do all of the, the you know, you have to have all the equipment and the safety checks and all that stuff. That's expensive. That's thousands of dollars a day. And a studio can can foot that bill more. They already had some things in the can, like West Side Story. You have like a big Ridley Scott movie that Ben Affleck and Matt Damon wrote, although the subject matter is a bit iffy. Um, (laughs) You know, there's just a lot of bigger stuff looming on the horizon. And we'll see if the film festivals are able to clarify some of the, quote, smaller things. But I don't know. We also, um, we got this, I didn't know, I don't mean to jump in on you, Katie, if you're going to mention this, but I felt like I had to. Uh, Jenna wrote in and asked... um, 
<laughs> will the next year's ceremony start with a dance-off between the West Side Story cast and the In the Heights cast? And if I'm we're like, lucky. I want nothing more now. Now oh anything my- else will be a letdown if God. we don't have that. So I love the trailer. <laughs> I like got emotional hearing the like whistle at the very beginning. So if this year's awards, I mean, speaking to the In the Heights West Side Story uh, dance battle, if this year's awards were kind of emulating the Spirit Awards in their sort of daytime cash, maybe next year's just does the Tonys. Oh, God. give me the Tonys. I would love Could it. Could we be so lucky? I mean, the Tonys <laughs> will presumably at some point happen. Like, uh, maybe the Tonys will be the, like, awards show to beat this year because I think they're the rumored plan is to, like, have them around the time Broadway is going to reopen. So it'll be safe to do a proper Tonys. And, like, you get those dancers who haven't been on a stage in a year and a half on there. Like, it could be great. Ooh, limber up starting now. Um, <laughs> Let's do a special episode for the Tonys, if any of this true. Um, I was thinking, someone asked us, like, you know, like, where we would put this award ceremony in the context of the other ones we've seen. And I would just say for, like, the COVID era, I still think the Emmys are the best example, um, but probably mostly because our expectations were kind of low and and Zoom ceremony still seemed like a novel concept. But if I if when I think back, I will think back very fondly on the Emmys and how they managed to pull that off. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I someone texted that this might have been the worst of the season, which I I definitely don't agree with, just for all the value you get of having people in person. Yeah. But yeah, I think the Emmys. Will, like, if we ever want to remember how these things pulled off, the Emmys would be the gold standard. Um, well, guys, I'll see you next year uh, at the Vanity Fair Oscar party if we're all lucky enough to you know if the Oscars still exist and uh, we still exist and everything else. Yeah, we're all going to strut into cool music while opening credit, you know, retro font opening credits play, right? I was thinking watching Regina King walk, like the poi. I mean, obviously actors have poise, like that is part of their careers. But like the way that she pulled that off on live television was oh. incredible. Only to kind of stumble a little bit when she got to the stage. Yeah, and it's like, well, yeah. she, but she pulled off the important part, you know. Yeah, she's still um, a person. That was quite but, a moment. I thought that was such a cool opening. I would oh, love if so they emulated good. something like that again. Uh, just everything that followed. No, please don't do that again. <laughs> And her beautiful blue dress matched the blue like velvet curtains they had behind. And I was just like this. Another another uh, communication between stylist and and uh, show, I'm sure. But it was just, uh, yeah, I loved that opening. I thought that was great. Yeah. And I should shout out because I worked a lot on the uh, the fashion roundups last night. And um, there was some really fantastic fashion uh, from both men and women. Men really continued their theme of um, really stepping it up this season. Like Lakeith Stanfield had that great wide lapel and Leslie Adam Jr. was in a literally gold suit. Coleman Domingo was in bright pink. Um, and then, yeah, all these colors uh, like Carrie Mulligan had that giant gold gown and Regina King. There's a lot of beautiful stuff to see. Zendaya. Yeah, Zendaya. As, as someone pointed out that it's a uh, it's it's really close to an old chair look including the like cascading long dark hair so oh, good for yeah. her and her had like a purple hood that was very much like prince's um, outfit that he wore when he won um i think guess for i guess he guess he score. won for score for purple rain which i learned yeah. uh, from Laura Howery last night see we all learned something from Laura Howery yeah i did <laughs> oh and emerald fennel who did not mention being pregnant in any of her speeches but very much appears to be pregnant from her body language and everything. And um, I loved her dress and I love uh, pregnant women just getting shit done. So oh, yeah, she she talked about it with Andrew Reynolds and Coleman Domingo at the oh, end good. Of, okay. of the night. And uh, and they offered up uh, some hybridization of their names as a good name for her, um, her <laughs> baby. She kept talking. She kept calling it her next project that she was working on her next project. And it was That's this. Yeah. yeah. You never want to presume, but she was like posing with her hands on her belly. Yeah, like I think she talked time. about it with Juliana as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. Good for her. 
Good for her Oscar. Um, okay, we'll be back next week with Joe Reed to talk about the 2022 Oscars and um, maybe just sing bars from West Side Story the whole time uh, if we can't get out of our heads yet. So, Richard, people can read your recap of the Oscars. Anything else that you wrote or will be writing that I should uh, mention? Oh, well, you go back and read the recap of 2001 oh Oscar my God. ceremony. Yeah. Um, that labor of love and pain <laughs> um, <laughs> is up on the site. Yeah, I, read a, I wrote a review of last night's broadcast. And then for the foreseeable future, it's just like regular reviews and stuff. No more, no more mank. Hmm. Uh, Joanna, how about you? Anything that uh, people should be reading from you? I'm just giving you guys the platform. Talk all you want. This is like the Oscars. Endless acceptance uh, speeches. Oh, Richard and I have, yeah, like it feels extremely normal to say that Richard and I are covering a Sunday night HBO prestige drama on the Still Watching uh, podcast. So you can catch those episodes up in the Still Watching feed on Sunday evenings. And that just feels like what you know, is been- the show? Oh, sorry, Mary V. Stone. <laughs> Kay Winslet's Mary V. Stone. Sorry, thank you. Um, we've just been, you know, in like Marvel La La Land and like all this other stuff. And I was just sort of like, oh, yeah, this is back back to the roots, Richard. Um, and it feels, you know, though the world is healing. There you go. Yeah. And uh, like I said, I helped with a lot of the fashion coverage from the Oscars. So you should read all of that, including uh, I did a, a Zoom interview with Maria Bakalova as she was getting ready. And she was so charming and was having such a great time. And I assume that even though she didn't win, she continued to have a great time. Do you think she um, also forgave Brad Pitt for mispronouncing her name? <laughs> Someone was arguing to me that it was actually correct, but I oh. would not proclaim myself an expert on Eastern European languages to know that for sure. Um, well, I've been saying Minari wrong all year, so, you know. I <laughs> finally have, corrected it, like, last week, I think. We, we like all that. have, uh, or at least I have. Um, also, shout out to Brad Pitt for um, agreeing with Amanda Seyfried that the Leo, Romeo and Juliet was the the canonical one. That's no! The come on! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know. Justice for a, Olivia Hussey. Come I on. know, but, like, I, Brad Pitt making a joke about Leonardo DiCaprio. It's like it's 2020 again. Oh, my God. <laughs> I miss them. It. Come back. Come um, back. Okay. So, uh, yes. Tune in next week for us on the 2022 Oscars. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. You can text us on subtext, as so many of you did, and we want to keep hearing from you even though the Oscars are over. Go to joinsubtext.com slash LittleGoldMen or text us at 213-401-9739 to sign up. Um, you can follow us on our own on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Ryan Loss. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of this truly eternal award season goes to Richard Lawson. Prisoner to its own weird momentum. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the review's director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.